You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. We're continuing with our sermon on grace, being strong in grace, and I am just loving preaching grace. There's not really anything better in the world, is there, than hearing the gospel of grace. We were at the school swimming carnival on Thursday night. There was a few other people here who were there. And uh, at the school swimming carnival, as I'm sure you'd be aware, the idea is to earn as many points as you can for your house, isn't it? And so you earn points for for swimming fast and winning races, or you earn points for cheering really loudly. A lot of the kids were there with the drumsticks and claves, making a lot of noise. They had their chants going, and they were earning points. You, You even get points for going in the races, participation. And then champions who, who get, you know, do really well in their races, they get certificates and they get medals and they get to stand on this big podium and they get rewarded even more for their efforts and all their hard work. And of course, that's a beautiful image, isn't it, of how the world works. You do good, you get rewarded. You do better than others, you get rewarded even more. You work hard, you get blessed for it. The world's way is, is do, do, do. No one at the swimming carnival earned points by sitting in the shade on their chair. I know of a few people who tried. No one was successful by just relaxing on their towel for the afternoon, for resting. That's the way of the world, isn't it? The world is all about we will And we're so conditioned to it. We don't even think about it as being unusual. You've heard the saying, of course, nothing is for free. Have you heard that saying? Nothing is for free? Or what about if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. They're really common sayings, aren't they? Uh, our, Our legal system is built around this concept. So it says, do this, you get punished. Don't do this you get punished, or don't do this, you'll be okay. At the school recently, the start of the school year, there's a bit of an issue with uh, double parking in the school street, and so someone uh, dobbed this into the local police officer, wasn't me, it was someone I know, dobbed into the local police officer that the parents were doing all this double parking, it was really dangerous. And so we've had the police officer and highway patrol there a few mornings this week. This is just a free tip, by the way, for any parents here who do drop-offs, all right? Watch out. Um, And and so looking for people who are double parking, uh, because obviously it's against the law. And if you break the law, you reap the consequences, don't you? God used to deal with his people on the basis of law, didn't he? His people, the Israelites, had to to follow a lengthy set of rules to enable them to have favour with God. For them to be blessed, for them to be successful as his people, they had to follow and keep all of these rules and laws. And we sometimes refer to that as the Old Covenant. And it was the first agreement or sort of contract for relationship that God made with his people, the Israelites. You think of a, a marriage covenant, okay? A little bit like that. It was a covenant of relationship with his people. And God gives all of these rules to Moses about the, the requirements for being in this covenant relationship with God. And they're pretty detailed. We've got the Ten Commandments. They're kind of like the shorthand uh, summary version of all of the, the laws and regulations. 
But there were lots and lots of, of things on the list. If we had a look at Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 and 8, it talks about the, these, these covenantal laws. Exodus 24, verse 7 and 8. Then he, and so this is Moses here, he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded by saying, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. That's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? Take a bit of blood and sprinkle it over your legal agreement. Can you imagine rocking up to the solicitor's office? <laughs> All right, we're going to sign the covenant now. <laughs> no. But, but look, blood was used in those days as a, as a way of, you know, signing the covenant, um, effectively, signing this contract. And it was quite common in, this, this, uh, in the, the nation of the Israelites and the surrounding nations to, to, to make covenant in this way. And so it was a formal part of the agreement that effectively was, was saying, may I die like these animals that we've just slaughtered died if I don't live up to my end of the agreement. That's how serious the agreement is that we're making together. It's so serious that there's blood involved. So it's not just a, a simple handshake agreement. It's a till death do us part kind of agreement. And of course, again, it reminds us of a marriage covenant, doesn't it, where we share those words, till death do us part. It's something that you don't enter into lightly. It's a significant and serious agreement. And so from ancient times until now, our culture is used to relating to each other on the basis of laws and rules and contracts. You do this, I'll do that. There's a problem though. I mean, the Israelites there in Exodus 24 said, yep, yep, we'll obey. We'll do everything you said. We'll do that. They nodded their heads. They agreed to the, the covenant. But the Israelites had this, this problem called sin. And it kind of gets in the way of them keeping their end of the bargain. In fact, it more than gets in the way. It makes it impossible. And so they failed again and again in keeping God's law. And, you know, it's impossible for us, too, to keep God's law. We fail again and again. And so what the law does and what the law did was to show them how big a problem they had with sin. It showed them how holy and perfect and great God is and how far short they fell from that perfection. And it shows us that, us that too. You know, God always knew. God always knew that the law would not be the answer that humanity needed. It wouldn't solve our sin problem. It wouldn't make people do the right thing. It wouldn't keep their hearts in love with them as their, as their God. It wouldn't make us spiritually alive to our Heavenly Father. We were, we, were, we were like dead people, dead in our sins. The law was never designed to bring life. You can turn to Galatians. We're going to have a little bit of a look at Galatians this afternoon. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. It says, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. 
You know, the law can't make us right with God and restore the lost relationship we had with him when we first were created. Righteousness doesn't come out of us trying to be good people and do good things. Righteousness doesn't come from following a list of do's and don'ts. Galatians 3 tells us that the whole point of the law was to show us how guilty we were and how much we needed a saviour. It makes us clear that we all need Jesus. God makes a point and an example through the Israelites to show us that our own efforts and our own works and our own religious zeal and our own spiritual fervour is never going to be enough. It wasn't then, it certainly isn't now. They're an example to us that trying to live God's way by an external set of codes and requirements is never going to change who you are. And it's never going to result in long-term impact. Rules don't change who you are in here. Psychologists talk about a, a thing called extrinsic motivation. Have you heard of that term? Extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. So extrinsic uh, motivation or rewards is, is, is behaviour that's driven by external circumstances and external rewards. So money or fame or grades or praise. Uh, so it's, it's, it's motivational rewards for doing something that comes from outside of you. So for example, our swimming carnival. For a lot of those kids there, they were motivated to participate by extrinsic or external circumstances, the points they'd get, the praise they'd get, the day off school they'd get. All right. There were probably some kids there, however, who were motivated by intrinsic rewards, internal rewards. So they're the rewards that come from inside of us. The, 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 you know, when we do things just because we love it, just because it feels good, just because we enjoy it. And so some of the kids there would have been swimming, not for the points, not to see their house win, not to get a day off school, but just because it was fun to swim. So that's intrinsic rewards. The law is an extrinsic motivator. It's an external motivator. So it's an external code that, uh, that provides rewards for doing certain things and punishment for doing other things or for not doing stuff. Now, psychologists will tell you what God has known all along. And what the story of the Israelites shows us is that external motivation, extrinsic motivation, is never going to be a long-term solution to the problems of human behaviour or sin. Being externally rewarded or pressured into certain behaviour in the long term actually decreases a person's motivation to do these things. It doesn't, it doesn't change the person. So parents, we often use this extrinsic motivation. Teachers often use it as a way of getting children to comply. Come on, we do it, don't we? It's effective. We use it because it works, don't we? You know, clean your room, you can have the chocolate bar. You know? Growing up, the Saturday morning jobs were always linked to the chocolate bar. It's a very, very motivational, uh, extrinsic reward. The 21st century motivator, of course, is follow the rules or lose your screen time. All right, that's a common one, isn't it? Yep. The best way of motivating human behaviour, though, in the long run, is when it comes from inside 
the person. If you want to see powerful, effective, long-term change or or force to influence people's behaviour, it's got to come from inside. God made us that way. And so God's well aware of the fact that we operate in that way. God knew that the law was never going to be a long-term answer to the sin problem. So enter a new way. Enter a better way. The way Jesus established for us. And it is the grace way. Have a listen to this and tell me whether God uses extrinsic or intrinsic motivators. Have a listen. Jeremiah 31, 31. Steve read it for us earlier. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. What sort of covenant is he making? A new one with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. They broke my covenant, even though I was like a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put the law on their minds and I will write it inside them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. The initial covenant, broken. The Israelites mess up and it results in disaster for them. But what does God promise to do? He promises to make a new agreement, a new agreement of relationship where the law is where? Is it an external code of rules and regulations? No. Where where does God place his law? Inside of us. And so are we to be motivated by stuff that comes from out here to, to obey and to do what is right and good or... Or all of a sudden, do we become motivated and do we desire to do what is good and right from something that sits deep inside of us? Oh, this is a far better way. This is a far more significant way. This is a way that actually changes us forever. God plants his desires for humanity. He plants his righteousness in us. He, he plants his, his, his declaration about what is, is good and right or what is wrong and evil. He, he puts that inside of us. And so instead of us knowing the Lord through external priests or religious ceremonies and codes and lists and, and requirements to, to live in a righteous way, it now comes from our heart. And it's a promise for old people and it's a promise for young people. It's a promise for clever people. It's a promise for not so clever people. It's a promise for uh, important people and it's a promise for very unimportant everyday people like you and me. Whoever has the law in their minds and on their heart, they will be the people of God and they will know God. They will be forgiven of their sinful actions. Anyone. Everyone. And of course, people like this, 
People like you who have God's law inside of you, you will be driven to do the right thing, not because of a set of rules that someone else tells you about, but because of the right relationship that you have with your heavenly Father, because of something that he has placed inside of you. And this is a promise that you are included in, whoever you are. It's been like getting a heart transplant. You think about, you know, when we have an organ, an organ donor donates a heart and someone who has maybe a, an old diseased heart that's, that's broken and that's not pumping life through your body and, and it's a terminal condition. Your heart's not going to suddenly spontaneously regenerate itself, is it? The only solution is radical surgery. The only solution is a new heart. Who here has heard of Fiona Coote? Yep. So she was the first heart transplant recipient that's still living today. And at the age of 14 years, in 1984, she received a brand new heart. Of course, we all needed a heart transplant too, didn't we? Heart transplant was made available when Jesus died on the cross, when we failed to meet the obligations of the old covenant. He took what was due to us. He took death. Do you remember that blood in the covenant that we were talking about before that, that sort of sealed the deal on the covenant? The signing of it, you know, the, 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 the bloodshed that said, may this happen to me if I break the covenant. We broke the covenant, but Jesus shed his blood in our place. And so a new covenant has been made. And this time it's made in the blood of Jesus. And we get his heart. And where our old heart was captive to the desires of ourself, our flesh, our sin, with this new heart we, we take hold of this new covenant that God has made. And we're born again and we get a new heart with new appetites and new desires. We get a, a new spiritual heart. We have a, a new will and a new mind and a new nature and it beats with the love and the passion of the Holy Spirit. And it makes us think differently about ourselves and about God and about the world. And we start to want what God wants. Have you noticed that? That when you were born again, you started to want different things? You started to want God things? Started to change how you saw yourself, how you see each other? Here's how I think about it in my own life. Many years ago, before I had a real revelation of what this, this new heart, this new identity this new creation stuff was all about. It was like I was walking around with this old overcoat on. This overcoat that had never been washed, so it smelt. And it was pretty tattered, and it was pretty old, and it was pretty atrocious. It was disgusting. But you know, like disgusting things that, that are familiar to us, we, we don't know any different, do we? And so it's like I was wearing this overcoat, you know, it smelt. It was heavy, it was itchy. Can you imagine that old overcoat? And then one day Jesus comes and he says, you don't need to wear that old, smelly, disgusting coat anymore. Let me take it. And he takes the overcoat off me. He puts it on himself. Can you imagine how I feel? Free of this, this burden of this heavy coat. Free of this, this, this thing that was hindering me and holding me back. 
He took that old nature. He took that old identity off me. And he put it upon himself at the cross. And I'm free. Yet sometimes, do you know what we do? Do you know what we do sometimes? We forget that he's taken the overcoat. We forget that it was buried and, and, and put in the ground or in a tomb. And we remember this old overcoat and it's familiar to us. And for some bizarre reason, we like to go and dig this old nature back up. We like to dig this old coat back up and we like to put it on because it's familiar to us, I guess. I don't know. We forget that Jesus has taken it, that we don't ever need to see that rotten thing ever again. But for some reason, we keep putting this old nature back on. And sometimes I used to do that. I used to go and grab this old nature, this old coat, this old smelly, filthy, raggy thing and put it back on. That was my old identity and I no longer need to wear that. You know, I can now see myself as God sees me, free of that old nature, free of that old sin nature, with a new heart that beats in me. And, you know, I've started to change, and I bet you have too. We start to live a life like Jesus. We start to serve people. We start to love people like Jesus does. We start to accept people like Jesus does. We start to forgive like Jesus forgives. We, we worship, we pray, we do all these things just like Jesus does. And it's quite a natural process. We don't try and make our, our behavior fit our identity. Rather, it's our identity that shapes our behavior. We don't try and be holy and righteous through our behavior. We are holy and righteous because God has made our hearts new. They are now holy hearts, righteous hearts, and out of that, we start to do things that are holy and are righteous. We've got to get the order right. This is the new way. This is the gospel way. This is the grace way. You know, some parts of the church have tried to make people behave or be holy or be righteous through rule keeping. It happened in New Testament times. Here in the book of Galatians that we're reading about, as the gospel was preached to more and more Gentiles, they're the non-Jewish people, questions came up about the Jewish law and whether these new Gentile believers had to follow it. And some Jewish teachers had, had arrived in Galatia and, and they were teaching people they still had to follow the law to be right with God. It was Jesus plus the law. In this case, circumcision. And I tell you what, you probably don't want to have to do that unless you really have to do that. But it was Jesus plus the law. It was a mix of grace plus law. And throughout church history, there are people, there are movements, there are denominations who've taught grace plus law. It's really common. You know, I could stand here this afternoon and I could say to you, you must, as Christians, do certain things. And I could say, as members of, of the church, if you don't behave in a certain way or do certain things, God will condemn you. If you don't follow certain spiritual practices, you'll be cursed. You'll lose your salvation. You must work hard to be fruitful in God's kingdom. I could say that to you. I could say, God is holy, you must be holy. I could say, you, you, you must attend church because God says so. 
You must go to small group. You must read your Bible every day. You must take communion regularly. You must serve in the, in, in the church. You must deny yourself. You must pray. You must fast. You must wear this. You must not wear that. You must read this. You must not watch that. You must confess your sins every day. If you do this, if you live in this way, God will accept you. But only then will God accept you. God will bless you if you do all these things. God will act on your behalf. God will make you fruitful as long as you follow the rules. And if you don't do this, you'll be under his judgment. You will fall short. God won't act or do anything on your behalf. And God will withhold himself from you. I could say all that. And I tell you what, would you be exhausted? Yes. The sad thing is many, many preachers and pastors do say just that. But it wouldn't be grace, would it? It wouldn't be the gospel, would it? It would be Jesus plus all of this. It would be grace, but you need to. Have you ever heard people say things like, uh, I believe in grace, but it has to be balanced. I believe in grace, but not cheap grace. I believe in grace, but I also believe in holiness. I believe in grace, but I also believe we have to do our part. The, gospel, the grace plus anything else is not grace at all. The gospel minus grace is no gospel at all. Grace plus law is no gospel at all. Because if you add even a drop of law into your salvation, then grace is cancelled and nullified. And you remain under law, and you remain under the curse of the law. And I guess if you want that, you can choose that. But I don't want it for you. And in Galatians, Paul is very clear. He doesn't want it for the church either. I, I, I love reading the book of Galatians because we get to see Paul kind of at his finest. And he is cranky. He's angry. He uses some pretty strong words. He words like astonished and cursed. Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians, he says, you foolish foolish people who has bewitched you before your very eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified and then he he, he does in in chapter six he pulls out the equivalent of bold face capital letters you know when people are angry they send you a text in capital letters you ever got one of those yeah so here's Paul the equivalent of capital letters bold face and he says this Galatians six eleven, to make a point see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. He does not want you to miss this. Don't miss this, he says. He's making a very strong point, very strong language. And the point is this. Anyone who is basing or who is preaching or basing their life on anything other than grace is a fool. And they're to be cursed because they're hostile to God. Whew, that's strong language. I mean, he doesn't quite swear, but I'm thinking he's thinking about it there. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
which is no, really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's the truth of the matter. Jesus, plus anything else, is a perversion of the true gospel. There is only one gospel, and it is the gospel of grace. And we are to live in the gospel of grace. What this means for us, don't, don't run after things to supplement your spiritual life. Don't be always on the lookout for meteor chunks of knowledge and secret insights and new revelation and goosebumpier experiences. And, and don't try and impress God through your, your spiritual works and don't try and in, impress others. Just love God. Just love people. Seek after him. Look to him. Enjoy God. Just enjoy him. Enjoy each other. Enjoy people. You know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and, and love your neighbour as yourself. Love God. Love people. It's a really simple way of life we're called to. Don't, don't overcomplicate it. You know, God who has filled you with his spirit. Just, just, just sit there with that for a moment. God who has filled you with his spirit he will work through you do you believe that do you trust that he will work through you you know it might be raising the dead or it might be comforting someone in palliative care do you trust him to use you as much or as little as he desires we don't need to force God's hand. He's pretty adept at managing the world. He's been doing it a little bit longer than we have, hasn't he? He's pretty good at building his church. Been a few threats to his church over the last 2,000 years, hasn't there? He's pretty good at seeing a way through. God's pretty good at making people holy, at saving people, at making them righteous. I think we can trust him. How freeing is that? It's to trust God. Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. But even if we hear, if we or an angel from heaven, imagine if an angel from heaven arrived right now, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you. Let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We all must weigh up what is taught to us. And I would hope and expect that you do that with every message I bring you. But what's the test of a valid message and a valid preacher? We must test the truth of someone's message, not by who they are, but by what they teach. You know, you could have an apostle or an angel come and, and teach you and be standing here right here. But, but if their message is not the gospel of grace, then we're told to reject their message. 
Don't, don't receive someone's teaching on the basis of their eloquent words, their powerful presence or, or their personality. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, he warns us of this. Don't, don't receive someone's message on the basis of their TV ministry or their conference appearances or even their, their, their mighty uh, spiritual miracles or power or, or, or the things they do. Again, Jesus in Matthew 7 warns us of this. You know, people come to him and say, well, well, didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we do miracles? What does Jesus say? I never knew you. So we can't use miracles and showiness and, and a great presence as a way of validating the truth. It often is how we choose to validate the truth, though, isn't it? How do we validate the truth? It's a simple question. Is this a gospel of grace that's been taught? Or is it the law? It's one or the other. There's really only two things that people ever preach. It's, it's, it's grace or law. There's no in-between. There's no a bit of grace and a bit of law because that's just law. It's either grace or it's law. Galatians 5.4 You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. What happens when you take hold of a false gospel? It's pretty good to know because you, you don't want to take hold of a false gospel. So what happens if you take hold of a false gospel? It says you fall from grace. So you can only fall from God's grace when you come under law, which means, and this is kind of comforting, you don't fall from grace when you sin. When you try and justify yourself through your own works, by doing things from God, by trying to make yourself right with him, that's when you fall from his grace. When you rely on yourself instead of relying on Jesus. Because that's a reversal of what God intends. Because it becomes us working for God and for his approval rather than God working for us and in us. Galatians 2.21 I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I do not set aside, this is important, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. When we set aside grace and try and impress God through our own merits, we are effectively saying that, Jesus, there was no point in you going to the cross. There was no point in you dying. Your death was pointless. We think that we're able to be righteous on our own by following rules, by following procedures, by doing religious or spiritual things. I tell you what, I'm pretty glad that I don't need to impress God on my own merits. I'd burn myself out. I tell you what, I could try. I've got the sort of personality that would quite happily try and impress God on my own merits because I can be super zealous. Any other super zealous people out there or am I alone in that one? <laughs> Driven, focused, a hard worker. I push myself. I can achieve many things that my mind, that I set my mind to. I can analyze, psychoanalyze myself through problems and shortcomings. And I could, through my own savviness, I could, I could have a, a significant, you know, organization here in Wagga. I mean, uh, Kuhlerman. You know, I could try and impress God with my religious zeal. I could be like the, the Pharisee in uh, 
in Luke's, in Jesus' parable in Luke, where I could, I could fast twice a week and I could give a tenth of my income to God and I could, I could live an upright, upright life that doesn't steal and doesn't commit adultery. I could exalt myself as one who lives a godly life, who, who never has a problem and is always victorious. I could do all that. I could do a great many things for the kingdom of God on my own. I could be successful in the way the world judges success. I'm thinking many of us here could do the same thing. But you know what? Apart from burning myself out, none of it would last for eternity. It would just be like a wisp of air. None of it would have eternal significance, eternal reward, or any real value. That would burn up in an instant. They would all be meaningless if they weren't an action of the gospel of grace. The old covenant relationship was based on if you do. If you do. There's a list here that Steve's going to put up. Let me read them to you. This is the, this is the old way. This is what we've been freed from, the old way. If you listen, Exodus 23, 22. If you look, Deuteronomy 4, 29. If you bring, Leviticus 2, 4. If you follow, Leviticus 2, 4. If you pay attention, Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make, Deuteronomy 28, 21. If you obey, Deuteronomy 28.2. If you disobey, Deuteronomy 28.15. If you humble yourself, 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's the old covenant relationship. But we're under the new covenant relationship. And so I ask you, the things you do in your life, are they grace-empowered or are they works-orientated? And, and this doesn't just cover the things that we think of as God things, the Sunday things, the Bible study things. This, is, this, is, this covers like the way you parent your children. This, this covers the way you, you relate to your spouse. I mean, have a look at that list. How, how, often, how often do we hold our spouses to that list? You know, like, if you listen... <laughs> Hey, if you pay attention to me, I'll be nice to you. you know? If you look attractive, I'll still be in love with you. If you make good money, we'll do well together. If you, I don't know, cook nice meals, whatever it is. If you, if you, if you. My love is conditional on if you meet my needs or do certain things. Now, when we experience the grace of God in our life, it will overflow into our relationships. Imagine how much different our relationships would look if they were based on grace. You know, the, the, the key point here is that what I do does not determine who I am. What you do does not determine who you are. The Christian life is not about earning points in a swimming race. 
We work from our identity, not for it. We swim hard and fast, but it's not to win. It's because we've got Jesus living in us by his spirit. We can't help but swim. We love to swim. We swim because he's in us. And so uh, we don't work or strive for righteousness. We work and strive because we're righteous. And we can't help but live our lives working and labouring and toiling and taking up our cross because that's the natural outcome of a life submerged in grace. Work and family life and community life is to be joyful and loving and liberating and full of freedom. There's a story of a woman phoning her husband He's on, on his way home from work, driving home from work. And she, she phones her husband and says, Darling, be careful. I've just heard that there is someone driving on the wrong side of the road. Watch out. Because the husband replies, he says, What? Someone? He exclaims. He, there's not just one person, there's hundreds of them. You know, when, when you're driving on the wrong side of the road... We can think that it's everyone else that's driving the wrong way. You know what? Life's hard when you're driving on the wrong side of the road. And it's even harder when you don't even realize it. Don't drive on the law side. We drive on the grace side of the road. So stay in your lane. Stay in the grace lane of the new covenant. Put your faith in God's promises to you because he says, I will do it. Whatever you're facing this week, God says, I will. I'll take care of that. I'll empower you for that. I'll be with you in that. And I'll just do it, not because you beg, barter, Read your Bible heaps. I'll just do it because you're under grace and I live in you. And I love doing it. I love being there for you. Here's a list of I wills. And we're going to come around a time of communion now. Maybe I could have Cindy on the keyboard. Could I have someone handing out the communion elements? And I'm just going to read to you this list and we'll have them up on the screen as well. This is what your life is characterised by. This is what God does. This is what God does. He says this to you. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to you. I will bless you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will have compassion on you. I will forgive your wickedness and I will remember your sins no more. I will sprinkle water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols and I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. I will save you. I will not forget you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand.
I'll be with you when you pass through the waters and the flame. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and with my eye upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your tree and the produce of your field. I will rescue you from every attack and will bring you safely to my heavenly kingdom. I will never cast you out. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never blot out your name from the book of life. I will raise you up on that last day. They're pretty special promises, aren't they? These are the promises that that guide your life as new creations, as people of the new covenant. These are the promises that shape your life and change your life. These are the promises that are a gift to you. You just need to receive them. Just need to receive them. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. I'm just going to invite you to stand as a, a sign of our unity as new people under grace. As you stand, may the grace of Jesus, the, the grace of the message of the gospel, may it just resonate strongly in you. May you know the the beautiful freedom that comes from being people under a new covenant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the grace that was bought at the cross. We thank you so much that we can be free people in grace. We thank you that that every, every sin every uh, area of our life that is broken and in need of healing, that, that every part of us has been touched by the blood of the new covenant. So we thank you for that, that agreement that you entered into on our behalf. And we are so thankful that we just need to say yes and to walk as people of the new covenant. We thank you that we are just free to be ourselves. We are free to be uh, just people of God. We thank you that you don't hold us to rules and regulations, but that you change our hearts and you change our minds. And we thank you that as you naturally outwork your righteousness in and through us, that we we become people who, who think differently, who act differently, who live differently. I thank you that, that our righteous behaviour comes from grace, not for grace, from salvation, not for salvation, from blessing, not for blessing. Thank you that we, um, 
can know the mystery of the gospel of grace. And as we eat and drink this, Lord Jesus, for anyone here this afternoon that needs a, a revelation of what that really looks like, who needs to know that they truly are freed from the old man, truly are freed from the old covenant, would you just do that in those hearts and minds this afternoon? We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here changing hearts, changing minds, changing lives. And we thank you that with the seed of the gospel, of your word alive in our hearts, our lives grow and flourish and blossom and start to shine and radiate Jesus Christ to our families, to our neighbours, to our work colleagues. We thank you that we have been changed by the gospel. Thank you that we've been changed by you, Jesus, and that you live on us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's eat and drink together as people of grace.